have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. But what makes a shingle a 40-year shingle, say, as opposed to a 20-year shingle? Let's say one of the obvious elements will be the thickness of the shingle, the thickness of the wearing surface as well. If you compare, if you put them side by side, a basic three-tab shingle that may have a 25-year warranty on it, and you're looking at a 40-year shingle, you're going to find the thickness. Now, also, if you read the technical side of the technical bulletins or information that's on the, the manufacturer's data sheets, you're going to find that the weight of them increased tremendously as you go up in number of years for warranty. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Red, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Remember, a house is what you build, a home is what you make it, and Ken is here every weekend at this time to help you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowners. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can forward questions to Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. And we're going to start today with a little bit of a history lesson, Ken. I want to talk for a moment about uh, the history of your floor. And I don't mean that in the sense of flooring materials, but in many cases we see multiple layers of floor, subfloor, and different types of materials in homes that are even 20 and 30 years old. Now, for those of you out there listening that happen to be in homes that were built in the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, especially if you've done any renovation or remodeling work. But you're going to start out in these ha- in any home with a structure and with a subfloor that was originally installed. And in newer structures today, if it's on a wood floor underlayment or wood floor structure, wood joist, we're still going to have the same subfloor material. And what happens when we install flooring is we build up from there. Typically, depending on the product, there may be a second underlayment material that is applied. If we're installing a ceramic tile today, or in some cases even certain types of sheet vinyl or vinyl tile, we will put a subfloor material, may only be a quarter of an inch thick, but on top of a three-quarter inch plywood structural floor, if you will. In older homes, typically you started out with a board, not a plywood. Plywood didn't exist back in the 20s and 30s. So you will start out with some type of a board. It may have been the finished product, a tongue-and-groove wood flooring that was in place that has been covered over time. But when you think a little bit about the history of the floors, we discussed in the studio the other day uh, with with one individual here, he was quite surprised when he he and his wife were ready to replace a floor in an older home only to have the folks out saying, this has already raised up so much that if we put another floor on top of this, you're not going to be able to open the doors. It had that much in terms of materials laid on top of the initial subfloor. So when you're getting ready to remodel, this is something that you need to put in your budget. If nothing else, you need to be prepared for a surprise that you're not anticipating. Because if you have floor on top of floor, you reach a point that you can no longer continue to add, sometimes just because of clearances of cabinets, cabinet doors, walk doors that may be in the structure. Maybe there are other elements in terms of plumbing or air conditioning that just cannot be extended any further to make that work. And what that means is you're going to have to remove at least a layer or multiple layers of the floor material and the underlayment that may have been applied over previous layers. One of the things that I want you to be aware of, depending on where you live, too, is you may be getting into today what's considered hazardous products. Now, in many parts of the country, this is exempt, but you still, just because it's exempt from certain codes, doesn't mean you're not working with a hazardous product. Older floor tiles, older substrate materials, underlayment products, contained asbestos. 
So if you're going to be doing any of the demolition work yourself, you need to at least be educated on how to treat this, how to deal with it. Many parts of the country, asbestos removal in single-family homes are exempt from the state and federal codes. Others are not. Check with your local jurisdiction. But again, forget the codes for a moment. It's still about personal safety. If you feel like you're dealing with this, you might want to contact an expert in how to handle the asbestos, whether it's in the mastic, it could be in the floor tile itself, it could be in the underlayment. The long and short to all this is that never be surprised when you're in an older home when you start to undertake a project, whether it's flooring, removing wall covering, even removing trim, only to find that you have more work ahead of you. And flooring is especially true. You may pull carpet up in some cases only to find that there's a sheet vinyl or an old linoleum layer beneath that. You may find there's a gorgeous hardwood floor that's just begging to be refinished. So sometimes the surprises are pleasant and gives you an opportunity to to move in a direction you had not planned. But remodeling can be an adventure. It can be a huge expense. But if you go into it with open eyes and you are prepared to spend some dollars to do it right, it can be a wonderful thing when it comes to restoring your home. Kitchen, living room, it doesn't matter. Is this a recent development? Because I know it's become more and more common as we've started to use these fabricated floor coverings uh, where folks have not taken up the old floor, but just in a lot of cases, we want to get this done quickly and in many cases economically as possible and just start putting the stuff down over the top. That's been done for decades, and it's still done in, in today's times. Sometimes it is about economics. It, in some cases, you would say the underlayment that's in place is not sufficient to support even the new material. So if it's a fairly thin combination, wouldn't be uncommon for an applicator or for a supplier to say, look, let's just put the new one over the top of it. We'll have the added stability of what's below here, and it gives you even a more rigid surface for the new product. But at some point, it's just layering. We've encountered that in, in, in my career, in my business, many times on wall covering in professional offices and uh, older homes. And as some would say, that really is there's a history there. You can go back in ages and time, and that's what people do when they're restoring homes, especially to be accurate. They're looking at the paint. They're looking at the wall covering of the day. They peel it off one layer at a time to see what happened in 1787, what was installed originally. And uh, it, it still is not uncommon. It, I will say it is less common, though, probably than it was years ago, in my experience, to just apply over the top of something. And I guess my other concern, as you pointed out, over the years we've had these materials, which everybody thought were fine and dandy and nice and safe. And now years later we go back and we look and we cringe at that stuff, that this is stuff that was put down not only in our homes, but in public buildings and offices. And, and now when you have to deal with it, it can be a major, major headache, as you alluded to. Well, what we've determined is there are products that we thought were safe decades ago that turned out to be health hazards, asbestos being one that most everybody knows about. But one that's fairly recent is lead-based paint. Now, lead-based paint has been pulled off the market. It was years ago. But for homes built in the last uh, 20 to 30 years, it's not an issue. But, again, if you're in a home built in the 40s, 50s, uh, 60s, most paints contained lead. And so if you're sanding that, you're creating this airborne fine dust that is a health hazard, as well as the chips that can get into everything from your planter areas outside to uh, just areas that kids may be exposed to inside. So we do have these health hazards that we now know about, and since we know about it, we need to treat it appropriately, and we want everybody listening to us to be safe in what they're doing. So if you're going to get into renovation, especially in these older homes, beware, number one, of, of asbestos-containing components that you have, a lot of insulation, floor products, floor mastic, even glazing compound. The, the putty that holds glass in some of the sashes contain that. 
shingles, much of the plaster, all contain some degree of asbestos. And the lead-based paint is an issue because most of us are, at some point, we'll do painting in our own homes. We may not be removing floors, but we'll do painting. We need to be careful about it. You can go online today. The federal government has posted health information on how to deal with lead-based paint for the do-it-yourselfers, the type mask you need, the respirators, and how you handle the product. It's not as hazardous as asbestos, but it is dangerous to be breathing, and we want to treat it right. So go online, do some research, and you can still do your own painting. Just do it safely. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and if you'd like to reach him with a question at any time, call 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can forward your emails to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Have a question about your home inside or out? Give Ken a call, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can forward him an email question at Ken, KenTheContractor.com. It's Robert who joins us right now. Robert, hi, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hey, how y'all doing today? Good. Hi, Robert. How can we help you? I was wondering about composite decking the boards. Uh, I have access to Evergreen brand of the composite decking, uh, what do you think of it? Would you use it versus concrete? Or I have used so many different deck products. I will tell you that in recent years, the products have been, I guess, modified by some companies that I used years ago to the point that I would have to say that most everything I've used has been pretty respectable. Depends on what you're looking for now. You're talking about, just for our audience standpoint, you're talking about redoing a deck or building a new deck? Uh, no, it's an old front porch. It's on an old application, and I'm not real sure about the framing under it, but if the framing is good, on it's on an old farmhouse. If the framing is good, I want to just go ahead and put it back down over that. All right, yeah. If it's structurally sound, I would agree with you. And if you use some type of a composite deck, now you have other options. Uh, but what you're talking about, in my experience, is a decent deck material. You're going to find decks for you and for the benefit of our listeners that are that just run the scale from vinyl to aluminum to primarily wood fiber composite to vinyl materials and composition of all of those together. There's so many things in the marketplace. It's a little bit like caulking and paints. There's such a variety out there that it can be confusing these days. So one of the things I would suggest you do is first examine your substructure. Be sure that it's fine. And then secondly, take a look at the finish that you want. If this is exposed, and since it's an exterior porch, you've got a roof over it. Maybe you don't have as much exposure as you do with an open deck, but you want something probably that's relatively non-slip. You want something that you're not going to have to paint year after year. You want something you can put down one more time and probably live with it and say that's it, I assume. Yes, sir, that's right. Uh, would you recommend, would, what do you think of Evergreen? Are you familiar with that brand? With the brand, yeah. I've used Evergreen in a limited uh, application. I also would suggest uh, you, you look at several other brands because there are some that produce similar products. You can look at Evergreen. You can look at Trex. You can look at two or three others that are in the marketplace. But I wouldn't settle on just one till I've examined several others, looking again at the properties, the characteristics, mold and mildew resistance, slip resistance, expansion coefficients. Some of the products, not just Evergreen, but Trex and others, have more. Uh, they expand and contract more than others do, and I don't know your particular scenario if you're going wall-to-wall or if this is just from a wall out in every case. You want to be sure that it's the right application for you, and then once you narrow that down, this is what I would do, and this is what I advise clients to do. 
don't just look at one brand, but look at at least two or three and then narrow that down to the product within the brand that you really like, the texture, the color, the finish, uh, whether it's a concealed fastener, whether it's a surface fastener, uh, and then make some decisions. Okay, I want these three, and then let's get some pricing on them. Because if you don't do that, you may find that as soon as you buy a product, and I take nothing away from Evergreen, but you want to be sure you're satisfied with that. And the only way you'll know that for sure is to examine some of the other options in the marketplace and to obtain pricing. There, because there's just, I can't sit here and describe to you all the variations. I go to International Builder Show and other places, and I see things that just boggle my mind and that I haven't even worked with in spite mm-hmm. of the, the dozens of products that I have. So in your market, in your locale where you live, see what's available and be sure you're happy with that finished product. But with the products there today, you can do it one more time and live with it and not mess with it again. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Appreciate your call. Thanks for listening. Bye. Appreciate your call. If you'd like to join us, you can at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can send us an email question. We're going to reach out to Alabama to get an email question. We're going to go to Gerald in Athens, Alabama. And this is similar to what we just talked about, but in a different, uh, with a different product. And it's very short, very simple. It says, do vinyl fences become brittle over time? Very good question. Just as we talked about composite decking and the different types of deck materials that are there, they have different characteristics and different qualities about them and performance. That holds true with vinyl fencing materials. And, Gerald, as I constantly say, most of us are driven by price point. And that's not always a good thing. Sometimes we get exactly what we pay for. When it comes to vinyl fencing, that's typically the case. You want to ask some questions. You want to read some of the technical data. If you're having this installed, you want to deal with your installer face-to-face, and you want to find out, does the vinyl fencing you're about to buy, does it have UV protection built into it? Not all of them do. The sunlight is the probably the, one of the biggest enemies we have to the exterior of our homes and our yards, whether it's paint, vinyl fencing, roof, whatever it may be that the UV light tends to break these products down. Also, if you are, and I know you are not living in Athens, Alabama, but people that live listen to us that are in the extreme northern conditions where it will be very cold for a longer period of time, even products that typically are not very brittle, they will become more brittle in a cold environment. That doesn't mean that it's a bad product. But the long and short, Gerald, for you is that some vinyl fences can become brittle over time. They're certainly going to become more brittle in cold environments. And you want to ask the questions of not only the installer, but the manufacturer. You want to read the literature and see how they're rated before you start writing that check. All right. Let's try to sneak in a quick call from Glenn. Wants to talk about uh, driveways. Glenn, go right ahead with your question for Ken the Contractor. Hi there, Ken. Hi there. Uh, I've got a small driveway asphalt that I need to uh, put a sealer on. And do they make different varieties now or compounds? They do, and, and, and that, that's an important question. A lot of folks don't think about that. I'm glad you are. You're going to find two that are very common, and they're going to be one water-based. The other one's going to be oil-based. Now, the water-based sealer for asphalt typically costs less money. 
It's more user-friendly. It's the type of thing we would normally buy in most of the big box stores and apply ourselves. The oil-based is may not be as easy to find at some of the standard retailers, but it's going to last longer. It's going to be more difficult to clean up, and if you get it on your clothes or other items, you're probably going to be throwing them away. That is more often used by professionals than homeowners, but those are the two types you'll find most common. Okay. Oh, so you recommend the oil-based? For what I'm using, even in the in the commercial world, when I have something sealed, a, a, par, a professional uh, by a professional, a commercial parking lot, I like the oil-based product that's out there. Okay. Uh, it lasts longer. It does a better job. It will take it longer to cure, and it's a little harder to find. Well, the other question I've got is, uh, saw a neighbor putting down with roller. Uh, I, this is the first time for many years I've had a asphalt uh, part of a driveway, but uh, they've used a roller on it. And I, before I'd use a squeegee, which which uh, the squeegee is probably going to allow you to cover that with a thicker mill coating than the roller will. And if if I were doing this myself, I would tend to use the squeegee. But it depends on the product to read the side of the can because they're going to give you the recommended application method. Right. Okay. All right. That will. Uh, oh. Does it, uh, five gallon usually they come in five gallon containers. Typically five gallons, and you'll have to read the side depending on the product for the coverage, and it's going to vary quite a bit. You may some as, see some as limited as 150 square feet to the gallon, and others going on up to 300 or more per gallon. Glenn, thank you. We do appreciate it. Good luck with the project. If you'd like to join us, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And remember, uh, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. Thanks for making us part of your weekend plans. Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, is here each weekend to take your calls, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or we can always take your question through our website. You can email it to KenTheContractor.com. Let's go back to the phone lines right now and get it 800-614-2975. It's Tim who joins us. Tim, thanks for waiting. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. I've got a question. I have changed out a um, uh, the hood and exhaust over the uh, range in the kitchen. Okay. But I'm starting to notice cool air coming in through that exhaust. All right. When you say you've changed it out, you installed a new hood. Exa- yeah. Did you install new ductwork with it? No, we did not. Okay. If this was old enough, it may not have a backdraft damper in it, and that's something you may want to look at. Um, there are the hood should have some type of a backdraft in it, but you don't know whether it does or not. I uh, know I don't. Okay. Well, that's something for you to take a look at. What is there a cover on the exterior, and does this vent through the soffit, the wall, or the roof? Uh, through the wall, and there is uh, a cover, kind of the vents. Okay. On the outside. All right, may want to take a look at that. There should be a, a bird, an insect flap, a backdraft damper that's in place there. And uh, that's not going to eliminate all of the cold air, especially when there are heavy winds in the area from coming in, but it should eliminate a substantial amount of it. And if that flap is missing, then you're just taking direct cold air into the outside. And as you have your, if you've got central heat inside the house and it's pulling the return air back into the unit, what it's doing is actually drawing the cold air in through this hood and through the ductwork. 
Okay. So you're running your energy cost up by not having this backdraft damper in place. So check your outside um, weather guard and be sure that it does have a damper in it. If it doesn't replace that, you'll do yourself a favor and you'll help on your energy cost. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Tim. We do appreciate it. The number is 800-614-2975. Again, we're starting to get to that season where, uh, for a lot of us, temperatures starting to change drastically. We're, overnight, we're seeing temperatures down uh, below freezing for a, a lot of our listeners. We've got some who have even dealt with snow already uh, thus far this fall. We aren't technically in winter yet. But drafts, a bigger and bigger issue. More and more products out there. I was roaming through one of the big box stores, and they had those things that you throw down in front of the door, all gussied up. Up in in uh, different ways, but there's a lot of different techniques and technology uh, that you really should go after those drafts if you do find them. You don't have to settle for dealing with them, do you? No, there's no reason that we have to put up with that winter after winter. For that matter, it impacts us in the summer if you're air conditioning your home as well. And that's the reason I talk about the home energy audits and some of the other things I do from time to time so that you can deal with these. And, folks, it's not something you're saying, well, Kenya, you talk about this, but it's just going to cost me a boatload of money. No, we aren't really talking about that. What we're discussing is first identify the areas in your home as we were just talking about with the caller regarding a bag draft damper, something that's very simple and very inexpensive, probably $10 or less to deal with to replace this particular component. And that by itself could pay for itself in one month on your heating cost if you're sucking this cold air in from the outside during the winter months. So there are little things that we can do. Some are as simple as insulation, for example, may not be in place behind our wall switches or outlets. And by buying these foam covers at your hardware stores uh, and in pulling the cover plate off, putting these in place, that by itself, you may spend $5, $7, $10 to get a package of these to do multiple switches and outlets. And by simply replacing that, you've stopped a lot of the drafts. You've made a room or multiple rooms in your home so much warmer during the winter months. You haven't spent a bundle of money, and you're saving money. So there are little things we can do that can have a huge impact. And, yes, there are some bigger things that cost more money. Money that we can do, and I'm not suggesting to all of you that you rush out and have to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars. Start with the little things, see the impact from that, and as you can over time, work on those bigger items. All right, time now for our universal living segment. And this week, uh, Ken, you're going to be dealing with what is commonly known for a lot of folks is that smart home technology, and this could involve the integration of your smartphone. Well, it does, and when we add this to the universal living, you're saying, what impact does this have on me? Well, that's because it works for absolutely everyone. Some of the technology that we're discussing was put into place to help seniors that live by themselves, for family members to be able to monitor them, for them to be able to come and go in and out of their homes a little easier. And But now we're seeing that it is universally accepted, and we're seeing this installed in new homes and retrofit on a regular basis. And part of what makes this easy is what I'm talking about today is typically a wireless system, very reliable wireless system. And this comes to us from uh, uh, Nexia, N-E-X-I-A, Home Intelligence Systems. Now, there are other brands in the market. I just happened to mention this particular one. I have some experience with this particular product line, and so I can speak to it rather intelligently as far as this is concerned. But it works. It functions anywhere in the world using a smartphone or a web-enabled computer. And you're saying, yeah, there are all kinds of smart houses and other things that are out there. So many of those that are extremely involved 
require wiring, wiring control panels, control systems that integrate everything in a hardwired system. What makes this particular system wonderful for universal living is it's transportable. Whether you're living in an apartment and you move occasionally or whether you have a summer home, a winter home, and you want to move some of these devices back and forth with you, whether you're trying to keep up with a youngster at home or perhaps a, uh, a senior member of your family in your own house or living remotely across town or across the country. And this starts with the locks, if you will. Now, you can lock and unlock doors through this. You can create temporary or scheduled entry codes. So if you've got a maintenance person coming in through key punch pads, you set a code for a certain hour. It's good from 11 o'clock till noon on this day, and that's it, and the code goes away. So you're not worried about security. If you've got caregivers that come in on certain days, it keeps track of the people, when they're coming, what time they entered, and when the door was locked back. It just It does so many other things that are just easy and important for us if we're trying to monitor folks in and around our homes. You can adjust heating thermostats using a train thermostat. You can turn lights off or on with this. You can pull shades up and down if you have the right type of shade to go with it. And clearly, like so many, you can monitor the cameras. You're saying, yeah, I can do that with some of the systems I have today. This is a portable system. It plugs into a wall outlet or it operates on batteries and it operates wirelessly going back through your computer. So you don't have all the hard wiring involved. And the fact that it gives you a lot of flexibility makes this a wonderful system to work with. Now, I also want to mention one other item that I think you need to consider with something like this, and that's called a Knox box, K-N-O-X, a Knox box. It's something most people don't know about. We'll talk about it in depth on another program, but add this to your home security and your universal living because it allows fire and rescue to access that home without taking their little hatchet and axe and breaking through the door. If you've got something going on inside, an alarm or somebody that needs assistance and they can make the call, but they can't get to the door, only fire and rescue, only fire departments in most part of the country can access it. And that could save you a lot of just insurance claims and a lot of other stuff because a lot of times uh, people may not realize that a lot of the damage that's incurred by firefighters is just trying to get to wherever the fire is. And it's not just a fire. It's medical emergencies because in most parts of the country, the fire department is the first responder ahead of your rescue folks or ambulance people. So they are authorized. They control the security on this highly secured. And this is something that's been common in commercial buildings across the country for a long time. Now moving into the residential side of the business as well. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? You can always reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email your questions to Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. And while you're at that website, check out some of the podcasts of our recent shows. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. Do you have a roofing question? Problems with some windows, some plumbing, siding, whatever it is, Ken Patterson is here to help. He is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. That's exactly what Donna has done coming to us from Topeka, Kansas. said, I moved into my first house a few weeks ago. said, I'm really excited and also on a budget. I tend to leave the doors and windows open to save energy when the heat is not excessive. I've noticed during certain times of the day that the bathroom toilet is wet on the exterior of the top part, I think the tank, sometimes on the outside of the bottom also. Do I have a plumbing problem or a leak? I have to clean the water off the floor occasionally, but it's not like a constant running. This is not really an uncommon issue in certain parts of the country in certain types times of the year, Donna. I don't believe you have a leak. What I'm going to suggest you do is check the following. 
I think what you have first is a condensation issue. You haven't told me whether you're on a well or you're on domestic or city or county water supply, and that can make a little bit of a difference. But let's assume that you are on a uh, on a well system, for example. Water tends to be a little colder coming up out of the ground, depending on where your pressure or storage tank is. And it may come out of the ground at 60 degrees. If your pressure tank is in a basement or in some place that's shaded and not outside, it's not going to get extremely warm. What you're doing is bringing very cold water into that toilet tank. And you're right, the top part's called the tank and a two-part unit. The bottom is the bowl, and it sits there. And if we have very warm or humid days, it creates condensation on the outside. This is just not uncommon. We see it in all parts of the country from time to time. So the way you can resolve that, there are several things you can do, and, and I don't recommend you spend a bunch of money on this, but you may find that you just need to keep the windows closed in that area. In that bathroom, you may also need to, re, to run the exhaust fan for a longer period of time to help pull, uh, exchange the heat or at least keep it a little more modest in that area. And if this occurs more often, right after a shower, for example, you've got this hot, moist air that's having a tendency to cling to the the fixture, and you've got the cold water inside, and it's creating that condensation. So you can pay attention to the cycles here and see what will eliminate it. You, it doesn't sound like you have anything to be concerned with. It's more a usage issue, and no doubt you'll find that once the heat dissipates, you start closing windows, that this goes away in the fall and the winter months, and it's something you'll learn to deal with and control better as you move through the warmer season. Whatever you do, don't let it create a problem where your rotting surfaces, the subfloor or the wall or something along those lines are creating mold or mildew. Time now for our app of the week. What's our app of the week deal with this week? Well, recently I gave you one that uh, was produced by the American Red Cross that dealt with storms. But one I want you to carry with you today that most of us should have, especially if you're not trained or certified in first aid or CPR. And that is one produced also by the American Red Cross. It is their first aid app. And it's the official Red Cross app. It's not one put together by somebody else. It's available for iPod and Android devices. And it's the uh, official site for them. Some features that you'll find there are simple step-by-step instructions. And it guide all, guides all of us through everyday first aid scenarios from cuts, scratches, bruises, breaks, debris in your eye, everything that we're all typically dealing with or have from time to time. It's fully integrated with 911, so if you happen to be on this app and uh, the issue you get into determines you decide you need emergency help, you can call the EMS service through 911 also by touching the particular app. It has videos and animations that make learning first aid both fun and easy, and that's one of the things I like about it. You're not sitting in a training class if you've never been to a training class and you're saying some of these might be new to me, don't know that I can read it and follow it well. Well, they actually bring to you first aid videos. They're showing you how to do certain things. There's safety tips for everyone from severe weather, uh, winter weather to hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, all of that's part of the app as well. And if we're in a situation you're saying, this is great, Ken, but if I'm in an environmental uh, a problem with a natural disaster and I have no cell tower, I have no cell service, what do I do? This will preload most of these first aid items. So as long as you've got your phone with you, it's like carrying a book, you can open it up. What do I do for severe bleeding, for example, for a compound break? All of that's at your fingertips. So check it out. It's the first aid app by American Red Cross. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were talking on one of our local programs how the number of people in certain circumstances are harmed far more by people not treating someone properly than whatever the the initial incident is, uh, that they've received the wrong care. 
and that's ended up either making an injury more serious or more life-threatening, whereas the proper technique uh, would have rendered it, you know, basically uh, rather easy to deal with. And it's sad to say, but sometimes no treatment is better than the wrong treatment, and that's one reason in things, uh, you know, people injured in car accidents many times, first responders would tell you that unless the vehicle is on fire, wait until the EMS people are there who know how to properly move them and stabilize them. They may have a severe head or back injury, for example. Do no harm is one of the things that the professionals will tell you. Exactly right. All right, got time for uh, one more email before we we wrap up uh, this hour, and this one comes to us out of Pennsylvania. It's Tony, right? She said, my wife and I live in a 100-year-old Victorian wood home. The basement walls are made of field stone, and the floor is made of slate. We've lived in the home for about 40 years and have experienced a damp basement smell ever since moving in. Recently, they put in one of those access door hatches where an old coal, uh, coal room used to be. The contractor who put it in thought it might help get rid of some of the odors and problems that they're having down there. However, he goes on now. He says, not only do I have the doors in place, which has helped me get in and out, but now those leak, and I still have a humidity problem. We have so much humidity, I can't run a humidifier all the time. I'd be down there emptying this. I need some help. That's the bottom line. He's got a very long email here. First off, any hatch that's put in hatchway, access way to the outside of a basement needs to be properly sealed. In your case, Tony, you're telling me that you've got a stone foundation. That makes it unusually difficult. It's a little easier if you're up against concrete block, concrete walls, or just brickwork. But where you have stonework, there are gaskets and seals made for all of these. They're a compression seal, and they fit and mold and conform to whatever that exterior surface happens to be. Stone's going to be rather rough. Now, if you have some excessive projections on that stone, your contractor may need to grind down or chip away at those in order to make this a reasonably secure gap and eliminate both light and air and water and snow, which is the problem you go on to elaborate with here in your email. So, yes, that can be installed correctly. It sounds like you had an improper installation. So you need to call the contractor or a contractor, another one back out, and ask that it be done properly using these. Don't allow them just to throw a tube of caulking on each side and say that solves the problem because caulking is not the solution. It is a cosmetic item. It's not designed for long-term waterproofing. I don't care what it says on the side. That's my experience with it. So seal it up properly. That's one issue. You also go on to tell me you're installing a couple of sump pumps in the basement. If you have constant water problems, as you say you do, that's going to be a good start. You need to look at the outside of the house. Be sure that the water is draining away from the house. If you need to bring some fill dirt in and compact it up against the house so you have a positive slope, that could help. Be sure that if you have gutter and downspout, that the downspouts are taking the water away from the house during a rain. Also, stone basements are so unique, these old ones compared to brick or block, in that they typically are just solid stone with mortar joint from inside from out. And one of the things that will help you if the water's coming in above grade, largely rainwater, is to waterproof that. Something as simple and inexpensive as a Thompson water seal that you can spray on with a garden sprayer every year or so will do justice to that. And if you have any type of other drainage swales around the house, you want to be sure it's conveying the water away from the house. A home this old is not likely to have any type of a foundation drain, so I can't give you much advice with that. If you've got a serious problem, that is the permanent solution is to install a foundation drain. Good luck, Tony. Don't forget, if you've got a question for Ken, email him at kenthecontractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor, where folks come for professional answers. Thanks for joining us this hour on Ken the Contractor.
You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.